from Kurtco Media. The wild past that helped shape modern travel. Legendary Abercrombie and Kent founder Jeffrey Kent is here to talk about some of his amazing adventures and what he believes are the new frontiers of luxury travel. I'm Bruce Wallen, and this is Travel That Matters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Travel That Matters. This is the podcast where we explore the world's most exceptional and meaningful travel experiences, and we meet some of the fascinating people who make them possible. My guest today is pretty much the ultimate example of that. I would argue that he has done more to shape what modern luxury travel looks like than anyone else on the planet. And the amazing thing is, after 60 years, he's still leading the way. He's still pushing boundaries, exploring new frontiers. I am talking, of course, about Jeffrey Kent, who founded Abercrombie & Kent way back in 1962. Since those very first days in Kenya, where he founded the company, he and Abercrombie & Kent have been responsible for many, many firsts in this industry, including creating the first commercial safaris that weren't for hunting. Everything else was was a hunting safari back then. Jeffrey has also pioneered a number of, of destinations over the years, places that you know we now consider established, like Kenya and Tanzania and Botswana. He really started taking people to those places long before anyone else was doing it. As you'd expect, Jeffrey is quite an adventurer himself, and he's, he's set a number of firsts on his own as well, including becoming the first person at the age of, of 16, by the way, to ride a motorcycle from Nairobi to Cape Town. Now, as you can probably tell, I hold Jeffrey in very, very high regard. We've all heard that saying that, you know, you should never meet your heroes, but I can definitely say that he is an example to the contrary. I've had the pleasure of meeting him a few times over the years, and, and he just continues to inspire. He's still out there pioneering new destinations and, and going places other people don't go. And we're going to hear about some of those places, of course, and also about some of the many great adventures that Jeffrey has had over the years. So let's get right to it with the travel legend and Abercrombie and & Kent founder, Jeffrey Kent. Jeffrey Kent. An absolute pleasure having you on Travel It Matters. Thank you for joining us today. Lovely to be here, Bruce, and always fun to see your face. So I want to start with your your name today, Jeffrey Kent, the Abercrombie and Kent name for that matter, is is really associated with luxury travel. You know, you go on a lot of private jet trips and and are, you know take people on these amazing, incredible experiences. But you started off as a pretty hardcore adventure and outdoorsman. You were the first person to go by motorbike from Nairobi to Cape Town. <laughs> is that true, first of all? And secondly, how on earth, like when was this and how did you pull that off? Well, first of all, it's true, but by <laughs> accident. I didn't plan it. It just, just <laughs> happened. I was, I was born in Zambia, but grew up in Kenya, schooled, everything there. And then aged about 16, I was at the Duke of York School in, in Nairobi, Kenya, and I got expelled. But that's a really interesting story, but we'll save that for another time, all right? So <laughs> I went home, and my father, who was a military officer in the King's African Rifles, was not happy at all. And so life became very unpleasant 
in, on the Kent farm. And I decided to tell my dad, you know what? I'm going to go to Cape Town. He said, do you know where Cape Town is? I said, sure. Got out a shell map, said, we're here, and Cape Town's there. And he said, well, how are you going to go? I'm going to say, I'm going to show you two motorbikes. I'll choose a motorbike, and I'll go. He said, okay, you'll never get there. That's the worst thing he ever said to me. You'll never get there. So I literally left. I left the farm in the highlands of, of Africa. I went down to Nairobi. I had some extra fuel tank um, holders put on. I bought some biltong, dried meat, and um, off I went. Look, got the map this way, and I went, you know, south. From Kenya to Tanganyika in those days, and from Tanganyika to Nyasaland, and from Nyasaland all the way to Mozambique. It was then called Portuguese East Africa. So Jeffrey Kent, in his stupidity, left <laughs> Portuguese East Africa, had no idea because he just had a shell map, took the short way, tried to cross the Zambezi River. It had, <laughs> it had a ferry on it with planks. I fell off into the Zambezi and got stuck there for over a month eating uh, bits of crocodile, catfish, with a, with, a, with a tribe who took really good care of me. <laughs> better, better than the crocodiles eating little bits of, of Jeffrey along the way. Exactly, exactly. I, I want to go back to the fact that you were 16 years old. And, and just think about that in the context of, of today's world where, you know, let's face it, I don't think many uh, parents are sending, tell, encouraging their kids to, you know, go off on an adventure like that at the age of 16. That is amazing. And clearly, it shaped who you became. Definitely. I mean, it it really gave, you know, I was always brought up with adventure, but that taught me. The key thing was, it was so rough. I lived on the side of the road. I had no money. I literally lived literally lived in the bush. And then when I got to um, Salisbury, which is in Rhodesia, um, a friend of my father's took me and he built the first hotel there. The Ambassador Hotel it had eight floors and he put them in this beautiful suite. So here I was covered with oil and mud and filth. And I was like washing down a horse, you know, wash that. And then I had these lovely cotton sheets and food in the bed. I said, you know, this is great. Rough it during the day and live like a king at night, which is what Abercrombie and Kent became eventually. So I think actually some of the seeds were born on that initial trip. When did you go on this, the biking trip? What year was that? And then when did you start Abercrombie and Kent? I went on the biking trip in 1958. And we started Abercrombie Kent uh, in 1962. The point was that since the late, like, 1890s, early 1900s, the company of note was Carr and Downey, and they were very, very famous for their hunting safaris. And by the way, everybody in those days came to hunt. There was no photographic trips because there was nowhere to stay. That was a problem. Not, not that you didn't want to, but you couldn't stay. And so we invented the first luxury camp ever, in 1966, and I took it from all my army experience. The key thing was inventing refrigeration because there's nowhere to keep fresh food. So I brought all my army, my ex-army people down, and we created these deep freezes, and we said we could have butter, champagne, uh, frozen foods, and that we put it all into big diesel trucks, which I bought in auction from the, from the British Army auctions in Nairobi. So they're the same as the military ones, and those that's how we outfitted them. So they started, I started building them in 66, probably launched the first one, 67, 68, and that was the first camp ever. 
was there a moment for you when you you decided that you know because let's let's face it it was it was all hunting stories that back then like you said was there a moment where you changed your mind where you decided that's not what I want to do I don't I don't want to kill the animals I want to help people view the animals was there a particular moment was it something that kind of occurred gradually over time no two things happened again when I was sixteen I went on a on on a hunting safari uh, with my godfather called Lynn Templeborum in where the Maasai Mara is today. That was just a just a wildlife shooting it the whole the whole area, and that's where I shot uh, shot an elephant and I shot two buffalo and I felt really really bad about it because, you know, I was always loved polo as you know it came huge part of my life, and seeing those dead animals was like seeing one of my favorite horses. You know, I just shot a horse, and so it had a very reverse effect on me. And I said, why do you have to do this? I mean, it's very exciting to do it. You know what I mean, to get there. But why kill it? Why don't you just photograph it? And I came up with probably the best slogan I ever had, which was, shoot with a camera, not with a gun. Went to the United States, convinced 10 unfortunate people they should come with me <laughs> on a photographic safari, and they decided, yes, they loved it. I made a ton of money. I said, whoa, this, what a good idea. And that's how it all started. <laughs> that, that brings up another point, is that you know you you have been – widely credited with helping pioneer a number of less explored destinations that may have become popular destinations, you know, in the ensuing years. What is that like? Bring, you know, there's, there's an example right there with your 10 quote unquote, unfortunate customers bringing people into a, you know, a, a less explored, a place where there, there previously wasn't any kind of luxury experience. What are some of the places you've, you've done that? And what is that like bringing those first guests into that situation? Well, I suppose, you know, I really, I really opened up Kenya. In fact, all the parks hadn't been used because there was nowhere to stay. <laughs> so we bought the first photographic and really expanded the whole national park situation. They were there, but it expanded and made use of them, all right? I then went to Tanzania, really opened up most of Tanzania. Uh, still uh, owned the first Ngorongoro Crater Lodge uh, later. Um, we built lodges over Africa, over most of these places. Gorillas took me all the way into the Congo, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, Rwanda had a huge fight with uh, Diane Fossey uh, way back. It's in my book. Um, you know, <laughs> she said I shouldn't bring tourists to see gorillas uh, because they catch diseases and nobody should see them. I just want to bring it with Diane Fossey. It's funny how, okay, so we actually just had Dr. Tara Stowinski, who is the head of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund in Rwanda now. And it's she actually brought that up how Diane Fossey was very anti tourism the entire time. But since then, the foundation and and the Rwandan government have both clearly come around that this is a, a vital part of keeping these gorillas alive. So Jeffrey Kent was right all those years ago, even <laughs> though he exactly. was wrong at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so that, like, what when you are bringing someone, when you're bringing a guest into the Congo, you know, the, the, on a photographic safari back then. What is that like? I mean, these are clearly some travelers who have put a lot of faith in you. And so the, you know, the pressure's on, right? I'm still doing it to this day, you know, because I'd look at them in the face. Do you want to come, come for a gorilla tracking trip? And they said, where? I said, Democratic Republic of the Congo or down? <laughs> they said, where's that? Okay, that's it. So you have a little geography lesson and they find where that is. And then they say, well, are the beautiful camps or lodges? I said, nothing. In those days, there's nothing. We, we live in the bush. We take 20 porters with us, and we probably take us two or three days to find a gorilla, but you'd be one of the first. So I've always gone, I think, 
on on what I call the bragging influence. You'll come back and you'll tell everybody you've seen a gorilla. And that's what people like to do. Don't like me the other day. I had to go to the South Pole. How can I be around all these years and not go to the South Pole? Like people said to me, Jeff, you've gone everywhere. What's the South Pole like? Well, I haven't been there. That's pathetic. So I had to go to the South Pole. <laughs> so you just did that? Yeah, two years ago. Am I going again? No. My wife's going to go next. <laughs> <laughs> I guess a goodbye in Cape Town. Enjoy, enjoy some lovely safaris in Cape Town, and, and and see her when she comes back. I'm not going to do it again, but at least I've done it once, you know. So what what are some of those next destinations? You know, you 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 have pioneered a lot of these destinations and brought people in. What are some of the the next spots that you feel like people are going? You know, the next bragging rights locations, or or the next places that you think are really going to emerge as a luxury destination. I love Gabon. Beautiful country, Gabon, full of gorillas and elephants, and and they, the elephants are on the beach. Hippos surf in the water in the in the waves, um, but there's no accommodation. So you know, there's a reason why. I, so you've got to go there. You've got to build accommodation. You've got to build logistics, which is why we're so good because we know logistics, and we knew because I'm crazy and wild. So we love to do really unusual things. Today we do it by helicopter rather than by foot and horseback and a ancient Land Rover, Series 1 Land Rover, right? Do it the modern way. Um, <laughs> a bit older, by the way, than when I was 16, so it's kind of, <laughs> kind of easier by chopper than by horse. Uh, we've just been to Ghana, looked at Ghana, really interesting. Um, I look at all of West Africa, still has to be able to, There's lots of places, Portuguese East Africa, still a lot to do there. There's masses of new places, but we just need stability in the world. What's stopping tourism is stability. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Jeffrey Kent, who's going to tell us more about the under-the-radar destinations on his new private jet safaris. Before all this happened, a big big focus for you and for Abercrombie and Kent were these private jet journeys that you were leading really to, you know, again, to kind of pioneering destinations, but very high luxury, personally led by you. What is the status of those? What What is your plan for those going forward? And, and what are some of the, I hope, you know, assuming you are doing them, what are some of the exciting uh, trips coming up? Well, we've got a key one coming up this spring to, to the United States. We decided to do a wing safari around America, you know, so uh, the, the usual, all the exciting places we go to there. And that's, um, there are a few places left, but basically it's going to go, it's going to operate. It's just about sold out. So that's very exciting. And my wife, Otavia, and I lead that one. And then the October one, which is the around the world one, completely sold out, waitlist only, all these people. I just had an email before we sat down saying, end of COVID. Hey, Jeff, I'm here. I'm alive. When are you off? I'll only go with you. What's the trip? And so we'll definitely do around the world. We're going to go to Eritrea. We're going to go to Benin. We're going to go to unusual places in Brazil. Um, an amazing trip. And so, and it's completely sold out. But the reason I do it that way is that the people to afford this are usually elderly. I mean, not, not elderly, they're, they're older. Um, they've done all the adventure trips with me over the years, anyhow. And they love the fact that we really make them work like crazy during the day 
and the warm, comfortable night. So, you know, we've been to Base Camp Everest on future ones. We've, we've been looking at crocodiles. We've been to Madagascar. Um, we've been to all the unusual places. And actually, I'm running out of places. If you've got any good ideas, let me know. <laughs> well, it sounds like Gabon would be a good one. But I, I love it that you you are going to Eritrea, and you said you're going to you know places in Brazil that most people don't go. I know, like Benin. Your wife is Brazilian, yeah, yeah. so you, you have an insider you have insider information there. How how many people are on one of these trips, like the the around the world trip? Like how many people? How many days is that? And and what's the cost for something like that? It's about forty five people, twenty five days. You know, we we move every three days, and each every three days has to support the next three days. And we focus hugely on food and wine. So we have our own chef and our own wine. So we get that the highest standard possible, even in the most unusual places. And people love that. Now they can go to Benin or Eritrea and have an amazing meal. When we went to the South Pole, I literally took our own chef with us and we had $800 of bottles of wine while this huge wind hurricane we couldn't move from camp for a few days. But who cares? We enjoyed our food, you know? You had provisions. We had provisions. Yeah, I you know, I love that. And you know, nothing against the nothing against the four seasons private jet trips or anything else like in that in that vein. But clearly if you're going on a four seasons private jet trip, you're going to locations where there are four seasons, which there are in many, many fantastic locations around the world. But I do love it. These trips are more on the whim of of Jeffrey Kent. Where does Jeffrey Kent want to go? Where does he think is going to be interesting? Let's go there. Exactly. And I think that he's been everywhere, so it's got to be fun. And it is. And he wouldn't go anyhow if it wasn't going to be fun. And so, <laughs> and so we'll go. But I agree with you. You know, Four Seasons is a great, great hotel group, but, you know, uh, do you need a private jet to go to a Four Seasons? I mean, you can, and a lot of, and a lot of people do. But I like to be more adventurous. I, you know, I like to do the exciting stuff. You know, you, you clearly come a long way from the days on the motorbike to your days, you know, jetting around in private, private jets to these locations. However, there's still that core adventurer in you, clearly. How have you evolved as a traveler, or even like, you know, improved over time at, at what you do? A lot of my career was shaped by the British Army. You know, I went to the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, like your West Point, very tough military school, military education. You can't have a mistake because people died, not like something going wrong. People die. And so you were always taught one of the many rules of war was time spent in reconnaissance is seldom wasted. And so the more I live and the longer I live, the more I learn because, ha, let's not make that mistake again. So you, it's all in my head. We've made so many mistakes over the years and we don't do it twice. And, you know, I've been running Abercrombie Care now for 60 years, uh, quite a long time. And, um, yeah, we got 60 years of corrected mistakes. So, yeah. How has the world that we that we explore, that you explore, clearly it's changed pretty drastically in those 60 years. How is it, you know, how do you see the negative of that? And what is the positive that you've seen over that 60-year time frame? Well, you know, when I was born, there were 2 billion people in the world. And now we're 7.8 billion, you know, rapidly increasing every day. And so it becomes harder and harder to keep the wildlife alive. And we know that Climate change is here. We know that global change is here. So the biggest problem is we have so much waste of every sort in the seas, in the oceans, in the rivers. Rivers are no longer operating. Water's running out. The good side is that when I was starting, nobody traveled. Very few people traveled. Now everybody travels. So that's good. It's much easier to 
to sell, I had to sell a trip today that it was there. You know, I mean, <laughs> they said, come, come and stay with me in Kenya. Where? Kenya. It's a great place. Really? Where's Kenya? Um, <laughs> but I think the best thing is that people want to travel. They're inspired. With that, with the more people traveling now, and I think one of the things we all saw during the the height of the pandemic was that, you know, yes, there were some benefits to people slowing down and, and some recovery in some places, but then we also saw a lot of negative things that started happening. I mean, I think in Africa, especially with poaching increasing, or at least that's the, the reports that we're, we received, yes. poaching increasing because the tourists aren't there. So, I mean, how do you see that, you know, the, 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 the good that tourists do versus the bad that tourists do, and how do we kind of resolve that going forward? Well, I think, I mean, you know, one of my big things is that you need minimum impact. Impact affects animals badly. We should actually charge more because to have thousands of people not being charged anything to ruin the habitation for animals where they actually die is not a good idea. It's nothing to do with if you have money, you don't have money. You should basically, like, it's like, like a rent. If you're going there, you should pay to enter it. But the key thing we do is the Abercrombie Kent Foundation whereby we work with the local tribes for sustainable tourism, i.e., we're a business. So if we move people into an area, the local people should benefit. They should have schools. They should have education. They should have hospitalization. They should have medical. They should have all of these things, which is manufactured by us. And we have an incredible foundation run by Keith Sproul. And I think we've done amazing things from bicycle shops in Zambia, Nakatindi. We do wheelchairs for people who sadly have, have, have problems and can't walk or use their hands. And they're all made to measure. Uh, we do that. You can find all that out actually for the Abercrombie Kent Foundation. But it's something I'm really, I really care about a lot because it may, makes me feel good. In fact, I started that hospital with one doctor once a week under the tree. Now it's a huge hospital. But tourism did that. There was nothing there. When I came, the gorillas weren't even habituated. Nothing. So that's all actually one person, I, myself and Abercrombie Kent, and all of our wonderful clans who support it, now that represents 456 gorillas, highland gorillas, which is more than half the, the world's gorillas left in the world. So one idea brings in millions of dollars, builds schools, and has saved half of the world's gorillas. That's a good idea, no? Well, you bring up gorillas too, and, and Rwanda is a classic example of of charging for the you know the right, the privilege to go see these. I mean, what is it now? I think it's something like fifteen hundred dollars per person for a, a permit. Yes, and look, I mean, I, I think that is one of those experiences that is it is, is a it is you can't have millions of people doing it because it, it won't work that way. And so, the ability to help fund the protection of these animals through the higher fees and, and everything like that, that is a model that I think people will be taking on more and more. So, you know, the, the whole change, let's say, with the, from hunting safaris to photographic safaris, right? Like, what is the equivalent now? Is there now a shift in focus realizing that, okay, we have to make sure, I think I've seen this with a lot of companies, that the communities are involved, the communities are benefiting. Was that kind of overlooked in the old days? And now that's becoming a major focus. And is that, that the next kind of big step that we're taking? I don't think the communities are looked after at all, actually, because most tour companies are based overseas. <clears throat> they sell the business. They then use an operator to run it. Abercrombie Kent is the only business of any size 
all right, which owns its own operating companies. You know, Manfredi Lefebvre is my partner, lives here in Monaco. Um, you know, we have an operating business of probably 56 offices. We own Abercrombie Kent, Uganda. We own Abercrombie Kent, Kenya. But most people just sell it and then use an agent. So it doesn't really matter to them what happens. If Uganda is no longer there, they put it out of the, out of the brochure or take it off the page. You know, it's gone. Use another place. We're committed. And we have to, we employ people. They actually, we pay them. And we have over 2,500 people who work for Abercrombie on a global business. We're, we're, we were in full stage to open five to 10 destination management companies with lodges, hotels, and ships. You know, we own um, something like 19 camps and lodges, six river ships going quickly to nine, 10. We're going to build more ships in Galapagos, more ships on the Amazon. We, that way, we control the last mile to the client. And that is what, why we think we're so good. Because actually, I can look at you and I can say, what would you like for your first course, your first night, you see a gorilla? And we'll supply that because we own the business. Nobody else can do that. You mentioned South America, Galapagos, Peru, the Amazon. What, do you see that as kind of a new, not a new frontier, but is that a big area of potential growth for this type of adventurous wildlife-based travel that, that also has a very strong cultural element? I mean, to me, South America has so much potential in that realm. Is that, is that an area of interest for you and for Abercrombie and Kent? It's a huge matter of interest to me and to Abercrombie and Kent. I've been crazy about the Americas for years. I went to the Galapagos first in 1982. Nobody was there. I think we were the only boat. And I went diving there. Can you believe that? Hammerhead shark were amazing. You know, it's changed a lot. And the trouble is Abercrombie gets global, so, so we lose it, sometimes lose attention. We're, but we're moving fast on Galapagos. We'll build a lot more ships there. We've got a program to build 25 more lodges and ships over the next five years. America is great for Americans. Because it's close. You don't have the big time change, and it's within eight hours, and families feel safe. So I think all of America, North America too, and Canada, and South America, has huge potential. What, you know, like, it's all about for you, for Abercrombie and Kent, for all these clients that you're talking about, it's really about creating transformational experiences that are going to want them to come back again and again and again and trust you to be able to keep on creating those experiences. When was the last time you had an experience like that. I mean, it sounds like the South Pole was <laughs> was a good and and bad. But is there is there a particular time recently where you just felt like you know this is this is why I travel? You know, I was a polar player. You know, I was really and I at the highest levels, and I miss you know I, I had a huge accident, and I miss playing that high level. I used to love it when you won and all these crowds would be cheering better when Prince Charles was playing with me than without me because they're obviously cheering for him and not for me, but I pretended it was me. And so <laughs> I, liked I, liked I liked all the cheers and the adulation. You know, I like that. And so when that went out of my life, I got to have something to excite me. You know, life's pretty boring. Otherwise. I mean, if you're just sitting, you know, doing, looking at a computer all day, that's no fun. I like the excitement. And whenever I do a trip, even the South Pole, I wanted it exciting. We climbed a mountain that had never been climbed before. Even though the guy in front of me knocked a rock off the ledge and hit me on the head and knocked me out and broke almost broke his finger, but but it didn't quite, and I lived, so that's great. Um, so <laughs> so we do those things, but I really feel that I'm excited when I get back. You know, Gabon. Imagine opening up Gabon. Imagine creating a whole industry out of nothing. Look what we did in Uganda. 
Look what we did in Botswana, one of the first places I went to in 1966, Land. There was nothing there. The airstrip was just a road. There was nothing. And look what we've done in Botswana. I mean, we own beautiful camps, and lodges. We create industry. We create business. We, through Abercrombie Kent Foundation, we build hospitals. It's amazing. Like you said, you don't have to explain to people where Botswana is anymore or what Botswana no, is. They know where it is now. You have to tell them, why was it called Betuana Land? I said, that's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so of all these places that you've been in, in, your, in your career as an adventurer, you know, you have been everywhere. I don't, how many countries have you been to, by the way? Are you, do you even- I've traveled 70 million miles, and I've been to now 159 countries. 159 countries, 17 million miles by plane and by motorbike, both safari vehicle as well. <laughs> a little bit of everything. And I believe, I believe there's an F1 driving experience in there somewhere too, or something. Oh yes, we do that too. Yes, there is. In, in, in the UK, we're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So of all these places that you've been, if you could just return to one, where, where would it be and, and why? Well, you know, you think of that. I always think of of where would be the place I'd want to go before I die. You know, there's going to be a time, actually, when all of us are going to die, I guess. Um, so <laughs> I always say, where would I want to be before I die? What's the one place? And then I lie there because I would just want to spend time thinking about it. Well, there's that place and there's that place and um, cross off the South Pole, but there's that place. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, I go to Kenya. That's my home. And it's so beautiful. And, you know, this is the amazing part. So when I was born, when I grew up, the, the migration was there. 1.4 million animals, wildebeest, 800,000 zebra, all migrating. You know, 1,200-mile migration pattern following the rain. That's still there today. Nothing has changed. That's amazing. You know, you always hear negative things and, oh, it's gone. That is the same as it was when I was born. So I would be Kenya, yeah. Well, it is a, a beautiful, beautiful country. And, uh, you know, I do, again, I think we have you to, to thank in, in large part for, for why it is still a beautiful country with this incredible migration that still goes by and attracts many, many more tourists than when you first started out. Exactly. <laughs> so, Jeffrey, that is so wonderful. Always incredible to hear your stories new ones the ones i've i've read about it's just uh it's inspiring and and you continue to inspire so thank you for everything you do and of course thank you for joining us on on travel that matters thank you very very much bruce enjoyed it thoroughly. and now for the wallen wrap-up one funny thing jeffrey said was that he is running out of places to go now most of us of course will never have that problem but there's no question that there are fewer and fewer unexplored corners of this planet than, than there were when he was a, a crazy 16-year-old riding around Africa on his motorbike. Now, there are still countries out there that are, are relatively untouched by foreign tourists. Jeffrey mentioned Gabon, Eritrea. But I think one of the things that's happened over the past couple years is that travelers have learned to kind of turn inward a bit more. It's, it's not just in the sense of discovering your own country, as, as many of us in the U.S. have done. But it's also about going deeper in the destinations that you visit abroad. In the old days, if I went to Europe, I'd try to hit up you know at least two countries, maybe three or four. Now, I think I'm happier just going to one place and focusing on it. Maybe maybe going to a couple of, of less touristy spots within that country. And and I know I'm not the only person thinking like this right now. Like I think that's that's one of the things that's happening. And with that, 
I think there are certain cities and regions that that might have been overlooked in the past that are now starting to attract a little more attention. I'd, I'd put the city of Arles in Provence in that category. So brand new Frank Gehry Design Museum just opened up there. There are new hotels opening, new restaurants. It's the kind of place that, you know, far more people now are going to think about tacking on to a trip to Paris or the French Riviera than they would have in the past. Here in Mexico, there are a bunch of under-the-radar destinations that I'm discovering. I'm not going to tell you about all of them yet, but one that I think is about to become very popular is Querétaro, which is it's a city surrounded by mountains with great outdoor adventures, wineries all around, a great craft brewery scene. The luxury collection is opening a new hotel there later this year. It's called Hacienda Caretas. That is definitely one to keep an eye on. It's not just cities, of course. In, in Tanzania, one of one of Jeffrey's favorite spots, Asilia, Africa, is opening a new lodge called Usangu, and it's in a very, very remote stretch of Ruahu National Park, which already is is a very, very remote place that like way fewer people go there than go to say the the Serengeti. So. You know, look, there are many, many examples of, of these types of, of so-called new spots all around the world. The point is, we don't always have to look for new destinations to find different places to explore. The main thing, like with Jeffrey Kent, is to keep exploring. I'd like to thank Jeffrey Kent for joining us today on Travel That Matters. For more information on Abercrombie & Kent, please check out our show notes or visit kurtco.com backslash travel that matters. This show is produced for Kurtco Media by AJ Mosley. Assistance by Monica Kelly. Music by Joey Salvia and hosted by me, Bruce Wallen, and we will see you down the road. <laughs>